When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households. And come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, and their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. If you're visiting with us, we work through books of the Bible predominantly as we, uh, for our preaching, and um, we are actually way into Genesis here, Genesis chapter 45, halfway through the chapter. And our passage this morning is the first passage that comes after the climax of the Joseph story, excuse me. And so what we have remaining in Genesis is only five and a half chapters, which are all narrative resolution, the end of the story as Jacob and his family settle into Egypt. Now, if you consider a common storyline, the resolution or ending is usually a very short section just to tie up some final loose ends. Sometimes it's as short as, and they all lived happily ever after. In a typical novel, this is just over 1% of the total writing space. But in the Joseph narrative, the resolution accounts for a third of the total chapters. So if you think about the the Joseph story Bible version or the, the Sunday school version, you probably don't get almost the entire last third of the story because it's all after the climax. It's all after all the tension. It reminds me of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and if you're not a nerd, I'm sorry. 
Um, but uh, it's got the, the multiple lengthy endings of emotional Hobbit farewells. Even in the, the cinematic adaptation, the ending is five times longer than the average movie epic. And the credits don't start till 27 minutes after the One Ring is destroyed. And so this is how it is with the Joseph narrative. The, the big event has already happened. Now we have a long resolution. The first purpose of this extended resolution is to carefully show that the purposes of God expressed to Joseph in the promised dreams are now completely fulfilled. It's very detailed. The family would now live together in Egypt under the rulership of Joseph as God had revealed to him. And so the predominant message is God can be taken at his word. Despite a 22-year interval of which Joseph was enslaved or imprisoned for almost two-thirds, everything that God had promised him has now come to fruition, along with the rescue of his entire fledgling tribe and so much more abundant blessing than Joseph could have ever possibly conceived. The second thing that we should see in this section is that despite it being the resolution of the Joseph narrative, it also introduces new tensions, which are not resolved in this book. So it's not only the resolution of the Joseph narrative, but it almost is a story in and of itself. The key passage to understanding the tensions we should be seeing here in our text this morning is found in Genesis 15, 13 to 14, when the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at this time, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And so the immigration of Israel's family into Egypt is actually a high-tension moment. This seems like it's, it's the resolution, but then there's this other high tension. The listening community knows that this move, ordained and endorsed by God, will result in some 400 years of slavery and oppression. And this is a tension that won't be resolved until the exodus but it's important to note that while this is a long way off chronologically, this takes place only a few pages later in the Pentateuch, which is the final edit and compilation of the first five books of the Bible. So the writings of Genesis did not exist in this form unattached from the book of, Je of Exodus. And so it's just a few, cha few pages later that we see this come to play. So it's already building the tension for the next story. One... Uh, editor put this together with Exodus, and so it's just bleeding right into the next volume. Because of this new tension, the resolution of the Joseph narrative actually becomes its first application. So we've seen what happened with Joseph. Now there's an application immediately. How will what happened with Joseph bring, how is that brought to bear on all of Israel's family. The readers know that God has been faithful in his promises to Joseph, in spite of and even through slavery and oppression in Egypt. Joseph has gone to be oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. So now again, 
God is assuring his believers of the ultimate fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in spite of the Egyptian sojourn. As Jacob's family were blessed through Joseph's sufferings, they also would become a great nation and come out with great possessions through suffering in Egypt. And so let's begin to work through Genesis 45, beginning in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your household, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And so we know from Joseph's story that through dreams of his own, Pharaoh was brought by God to appreciate the salvation and blessing he he and his entire empire had received through Joseph. And so his offer of the best lands and goods in Egypt are a fitting response of thanksgiving. In addition, Pharaoh magnanimously offers the use of his wagons, which uh, were a a technological marvel, uh, an economic uh, and especially military superiority. These were um, a new thing. This, this would be like us going to visit someone and driving tanks out. So they, they have the, the wagons that Pharaoh has sent, and so the tribe's women and children and Joseph's aging father will not have to make the trip on foot. Picking up again in verse 21, the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Now, both clothing and silver have featured prominently in the tale of hostility between Joseph and his brothers. And so it's a mark of reconciliation that Joseph gifts clothing to his brothers while continuing to favor his only full brother with a five-fold blessing. Joseph, who had tested the veracity of his brother's repentance, now shows that his forgiveness extends beyond mere words as well. In an amazing foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the one who has twice been stripped of his robe because of his brother's actions, now mercifully clothes those same brothers. Jesus was publicly stripped of his clothing and abused so that he could go before. He could go before many brothers and sisters through the oppression and suffering that would make them to be accounted righteous and clothed, Revelation 3.5, in garments of pure white linen. Likewise, new clothing symbolizes a new situation for the brothers, a new status. They are delivered from guilt, hostility, and famine, and with the prospect of abundant provisions in the best of Egypt. 
upon their parting, Joseph adjures his brother, brothers not to quarrel. Now, the, the Hebrew text literally says, don't get excited. And so, there's an interpretation there to say quarreling. It normally expresses someone getting worked up or agitated and has very little to do with arguing. And so, he, he says, don't get worked up, which most likely uh, means that Joseph anticipates that his brothers, who he has already tricked and tested both the last two times that they were leaving Egypt with provisions, uh, might be fearfully expecting another abrupt turnaround and reversal of fortunes. So, remember, the last two times they have left Egypt, they've left with a whole bunch of provisions, and both times it's been like, ah, no, you know, the, the silver is still here, or the, the, uh, Joseph sends soldiers out to get them. And so, as they leave this time, he's like, don't get agitated, don't worry. So, it, it's probably unlikely that he was worried that they were going to turn on each other at this point, but that they were still suspecting he might turn on them. As, a, as they leave Egypt for a third time now, twice he has stopped them as they leave. This time he's like, don't, don't get worked up. In the end, the brothers' families are richly provided for. The best of the land is now for Israel. The poverty-stricken, hunger-ridden people are now richly blessed. And Pharaoh has his reasons. He's appreciative of what Joseph done. But this is all very clearly ultimately a gift from God who has chosen to bless this family. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. So the, the state-of-the-art wagons Pharaoh sends ends up being an important providence. This is why it's mentioned. It's important because as Jacob does not at first believe his sons, they have lied to him before, and they keep on coming up from Egypt with extra silver in their pack. This will now be the third time that they've come with provision and extra silver, and the fourth time that they've brought extra silver, and so maybe this time he thinks they've upped their take and stole enough donkeys to bring their haul back with them. But the wagons provide this irrefutable evidence to Jacob that someone powerful in Egypt was on their side. And so his response on hearing that Joseph is alive is then parallel to the response of the disciples in the New Testament when they were told that Jesus was alive. First, shock and unbelief, which eventually turns to uncontrollable joy. Jacob's news concerning Joseph is a paradigm for the resurrection faith of the New Testament. It is only by the power of God that Joseph is alive. Though he has not truly died, he has been dead to his father for 22 years. Imagine 22 years later, receiving back one who was lost, one who was thought to be dead. So the gospel announcement here is that the dead one lives. By God's grace, Jacob's deep sorrow now turns to still deeper joy. 
It's as Jesus taught his disciples, John 16, 21 to 22. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Turning into chapter 46 now, in the first four verses. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now for Jacob's father Isaac, Egypt was off limits. God said, do not go down to Egypt, because it would be his destruction. But for Jacob and his progeny, God has made it a place of safety and provision. Despite all the negative experiences that they will have in Egypt, it would be as though it was a womb for them to grow into the nation that God would birth in the Exodus. 400 years of pressure and oppression, slavery would turn them into the people that God was making them to be. Just as Joseph was enslaved and imprisoned in Egypt so that God could use him effectively to bring blessing to the world, so Israel will grow into God's people in Egypt, bringing blessing to the world through Christ Jesus. The Word of God to Israel is a comfort and an encouragement to go, as His sons have before Him. Even perhaps knowing that it would be, again, a crucible of testing. Leaving Canaan this time does not jeopardize the promise. Rather, it accomplishes it. God also promises to be with His people and ultimately to bring them to the place that He has destined for them. And so He says, verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. God Himself will be Israel's personal escort. But the presence of God does not eliminate pain, but it does assure provision and protection in the midst of it. Wherever God leads us, it is for our good and ultimately His glory and our glorification. So God promises, I will go down with you. He also promises, I will also bring you up again. Jacob physically will leave Egypt in a box. But this promise refers to more than Jacob's remains. It entails God's commitment to give to Israel the land of Canaan. And so he's sending them into Egypt for a time. We know at this point that the Canaanites have been a corrupting influence. Every time they live near the Canaanites, Israel is almost destroyed because they would assimilate into the Canaanites. And we've already learned that the Egyptians, and we'll learn this further actually in the next chapters, but the Egyptians uh, loathe the Hebrews. They won't even eat with them. They, they find them to be an abomination. 
even. And even there, we find out in the next chapters that even because they're shepherds, they would never have any sort of interaction with them. And so God brings them into Egypt, into this place of safety. It's a place of trial. It's a place of oppression. It's a place of great pain. But it's also a place that God specifically chooses for them, which will bring out the best and actually preserve them. Until, he says, I will bring you back out again, they will come back to the promised land some day later when God has prepared them. Verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, I decided not to make Ryan pre-read the final section of our passage this morning, although it is always humorous to watch people attempt these pronunciations. We have a genealogy. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Zered, Olan, and Jahliel. And these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Ezbon, Eri, Arodi, and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to, Leban, uh, to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shilim. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. The repetition 
that this was all his offspring, first uh, both in verses 6 and 7 and at the end. It emphasizes that none of Jacob's offspring is excluded from the divine blessing. Now, this is actually quite a difference. Remember, the uh, generations before, someone is always excluded. God chooses one. And so there's no Esau. There's no Ishmael. Abraham, all of Abraham's other children besides Isaac. All of Jacob's incredibly dysfunctional family is brought together as one. In spite of their best efforts, God has not lost a single one of Israel's offspring. You remember Judah, he had already gone off. He left the camp. He went and lived among the Canaanites, intermarried with the Canaanites. And God disciplines and brings him back through Tamar. God has not lost one. He's brought them all in, all of Israel's offspring come into the land. Not a moment of Joseph's suffering or of the brother's testing is wasted by God. A quick breakdown of this long list is that it contains 12 sons, 53 grandsons, one granddaughter, and four great-grandsons, and one daughter, Dinah. And though they are not counted and perhaps have all died beforehand... Jacob's wives produce twice as many descendants as his concubines. Of Jacob's children, Dan is the least fruitful. He has one son. Benjamin is the most fruitful with ten sons. When compared with the parallel genealogies in Numbers 26 and 1 Chronicles chapters 2 through 8, a few things become quickly apparent. Genealogies operate quite differently in ancient Israelite culture than they do ours. They serve a different function, and they are constructed very differently. A family tree today, for instance, is uh, quite concerned with generational accuracy, whereas the biblical genealogies seem completely unconcerned with putting individuals into the actual generation that they belong. They're only concerned, it seems, with the biological connection. So, for instance, while Benjamin has ten sons here in Genesis, both the other records show that half of these are actually his grandchildren from at least one generation further removed. Jacob consistently refers to Abraham as his father, though to our reckoning he is a grandfather only. To their reckoning, he is both his grandfather and his father. You can legitimately say my father Abraham. And later Israelites would continue to refer themselves as uh, children of Abraham, referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their fathers, despite whatever distance generationally they find themselves. So this is not a family tree the way that we would imagine it. It's not this branch coming up and here's the people and then this branch branches into this branch and then this branch branches into this branch. It's actually much more linear. Who were all the descendants of Benjamin? And they're not concerned with the accuracy of which generation they belong to. And so with some of the biblical genealogies, the the first audience understands that the author may not even have had family records according to their generations, but is picking from among all their more notable biological ancestors to formulate the major points. And so there may have been many, many, many more ancestors. In fact, uh, there are 
very few generations between Perez, um, Judah's son, and King David. Nowhere near enough generations shared in that genealogy to cover 400 years in Egypt. And so there were many more generations. These genealogies serve a different purpose than than a modern family tree. Which brings us to the second thing made apparent here, and the purpose of the, fam- or of the genealogy in Genesis 46, which is that the author has carefully chosen the descendants of Jacob to arrive at the total of 70. So this, this number of 70 is just like, look, randomly there were 70 people. He's even explained, like, I've left out the daughters, all except for one. We, he put in one daughter and one granddaughter, but all the rest of the daughters aren't included. We're not sure whether the wives uh, had died by this point or not, but they're not included. It, it's, he's very carefully uh, made this a number of 70. And so we know it's not included certain members of the family, the wives, the servants. Only Asher and Judah's lines are traced to the fourth generation to arrive at the ideal number. And notably, only the descendants of Judah's son Perez are listed because he was the ancestor of King David. And so the the fledgling nation of Israel is intentionally represented as the ideal and complete number with 70 being a multiple of 10, of 7, sorry, 7 and 10. And so again, the point of is that all of Jacob's offspring were included in this immigration. This is the wholeness of Israel. Seventy is this number of of wholeness. Seven, seventy, and onwards, these numbers represent complete or wholeness. This is all of Jacob's children. Again, it's emphasized with this number. Also, the fruitfulness of this family is on display. With even the once barren Rachel producing 14 descendants, a, a double portion of the perfect number. She not only has wholeness, but a, but a double portion. The author also represents Israel as a microcosm of the representative 70 nations to be blessed through Israel. So remember in Genesis chapter 10, right before the story of Babel, the genealogy of Noah results in a total of 70 nations. Now it's confusing because the Septuagint gets 72 nations. And so in, in the New Testament, when Jesus sends out the 70 disciples, it's the 72 disciples following the Septuagint. Don't worry about it. But 70 is the number in the, the Hebrew text. And so there's 70 nations representing all the nations of the world. And at Babel, the the combined nations of the earth rebel entirely against God, every one of them, which essentially amounts to another fall of humanity, not only representatively as with Adam, but now in its entirety. So you have a Genesis fall where Adam and Eve sin representatives of the entire human race, but later at Babel you have another fall where all the nations of the world, all 70 of them, representing all the nations of the world, all together rebel against God, all together choose to go their own way, all together ignore His commands, do not love Him, do not worship Him, and and, and they invent man-made religion at Babel. And with this complete rebellion and the invention of man-made religion and man-made gods, there's a, a second fall here, and there is no nation left over. This was key to that message. 
of Babel. There's not a nation left over. There wasn't 69 who rebelled and one good nation led by Abraham, the Israelites. No, there was no nation. And so the immediate response in Genesis 12 is Abraham is called out from among his nation and God says to him, I will make from you a new nation. There was no nation that would choose God on their own. There's no American exceptionalism. There's no Canadian exceptionalism. There's not a special nation that loved God and did the right things. All the nations turned against God. All went their own way. And so God had to make for himself a people. And so God takes this man and makes of him a great family, a a tribe now. And this tribe, this fledgling nation, is being sent into Egypt. And now the narrator says, hey, these are 70 people going in. Well, the point of this is not that there was literally exactly 70 people in this convoy. The point is, and he makes it clear that he's massaged the number to make it 70, so he's not lying to you. These people are now coming in representing the nations of the world. Part of the promise to Abraham, first expressed in Genesis 12, 3, and finally in Genesis 26, 4, is, "...in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." Now, Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians 3.16 makes it clear that this really refers to the one offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But here, Jacob's offspring enter Egypt as the seed form of all the nations of the world, all the ransomed people for God, Revelation 5.9, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just as Joseph endured oppression in Egypt on behalf of his brothers, Israel was ushered into Egypt and spared there on behalf of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is not only God's faithfulness to the ethnic people group of Israel, but this is God's faithfulness to you and I this morning. God's faithfulness to us is that he sent Joseph into Egypt to be a slave, to suffer, to be oppressed, and then greatly blessed him there. God's graciousness and mercy to us is he took a people and he rescued them and he preserved them in Egypt, put them into this special place of protection so that they would not become assimilated back into the nations. And they came into Egypt a representative for us all, 70 persons. Representing people from every tribe, language, people group, nation. Now later, Israel would rebel against God as well. And they would fail to be the blessing that they were blessed to be. And this is why the Holy Spirit interpreted in Galatians that the offspring of Abraham to have been fulfilled in this one man, Jesus. Because all of the offspring did not fulfill this promise that through your offspring all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Jesus came, true Israel, to fulfill this promise of God because no man would do it. None of us, though though greatly blessed, turned around and blessed the nations of the world. And so Jesus was, as the Holy Spirit interpreted in Galatians, the true Israel, the one offspring of Abraham. Like Joseph, Jesus endured suffering on behalf of his people. 
and announced that the gospel would go forth beyond the geographical borders of Israel when, as recorded in Luke 10, he sent out his disciples according to this number of the nations. And this is why this number becomes so important. It's the number of all the nations of the earth. It's the number then by which the people of God went into Egypt. And it's also the number of, which, of disciples which Jesus sent out to the nations. And so while the nations are blessed through the one offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, now through Christ, all are welcomed to be grafted into Israel through him. Galatians 3, 28-29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or f- and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Joseph endured 13 years of tribulation and came out the other side prospered by God to bless his family. So too would Israel's family enter 400 years of oppression and be strengthened and perfectly positioned for God's purpose. The later audience, whether Israelite exiles in Babylon or scattered modern-day believers, Hebrews 13, 14, have no lasting city to call their own, but eagerly seek the city that is to come. And so seeing Israel's sojourn through the lens of Joseph helps us to see the common trajectory from so much further away. Do you see the blessing of this passage? We've just seen the story of Joseph. Joseph goes through this very thing. He goes into Egypt. He's a slave in Egypt. He's oppressed there. 22 years he's separated from his family. 13 years of slavery and imprisonment. And at the right immediately following this story, we have the story of Israel going into Egypt. They're going to the same place, under the same premise. They all, we, the reader already knows what Abraham has been told, that they will go into oppression for 400 years, according to God's purpose, His plan, His endorsement to, for them to move in that direction. Now, as we see through that lens, you see, now we can draw, trace it all the way back into our situation. Because of two points, I don't know if you love math or not, because of two points, we can actually draw now uh, the parallel perfectly all the way back to us. What does that mean for me in my life? Where might God send me? What might I be called to do? God might literally endorse some hardship, some difficult thing for my good and for his glory. It also shows us as 70 persons come into Israel or come into Egypt representative of the nations of the world and with later clarification uh, by Jesus and the Holy Spirit through Paul we see that they were actually there on behalf of us all all the nations of the earth are represented now in this one new nation created by God if we are found in Jesus if you are in Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. And so then Genesis actually becomes multiplied a millionfold as we come to the end of it. We've seen this incredibly precious promise to Abraham, one who was a pagan, one who belonged to one of these rebellious nations, and God takes him and selects him and says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be mine. He doesn't say, would you like to? I don't know how you would say no to God coming up and grabbing your shirt collar. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be mine. He promises him. He promises him. He promises him. Both the beginning and the end of his life are promises. 
So also with Jacob, the beginning and end of his life are promises, both the first time God speaks and the last. And then we are told here that this is not just for this family, not just this limited biological group, but God rescued this people on our behalf and moved them into Egypt to preserve them for us so that in Christ Jesus we could have the adoption We could have the blessing. We could be grafted into God's people. We could be children of God through Him. I want to leave you with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 to 10, then 16 to 18, and then the first five verses of chapter 5. I'd love to read it all, but it'll take all day. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your actions, revealing yourself both in your word and your deed. We thank you that we can know who you are more fully as you reveal yourself intimately in Scripture to those who you are enlightening by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you this morning, Holy Spirit, turn on the lights for us, help us to see the revelation of God. Help us to see And trust and believe by faith the things that you are doing in our lives today by which you are perfectly positioning us for your perfect blessing, working all things out for our good according to your purposes to glorify yourself. Lord, we thank you for these words, even your actions, but but we see the way in which the author, inspired by your Spirit, has written these things just in such a way as to communicate these truths. And so while there were not exactly 70 people who came into Israel, we see in which this was written for our sake so we could see your truth. Lord, I pray that we would look down the line of history, back through the ages, through these lenses, and that we would see your faithfulness, your truth, and that we would trust in you more fully this morning. Sanctify us in your truth, we pray. 
for the glory of Jesus. Amen.